following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. He is no longer there. He is risen. Amen. As we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord this morning, we will begin actually with Isaiah chapter 40. We were there a couple of weeks ago. We covered the first five verses. And in those five verses of Isaiah 40, I asked the question, if revival came during our time, what would it look like? I think that these last few verses of this 40th chapter would be a good follow-up to that question. It would be this, when revival comes, here's what it would look like. And we, we see a good picture of it right here in Isaiah chapter 40. So let's jump right in. I'm going to pick it up at verse 25, okay? It says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So what are these verses saying to us? No one is greater in the entire universe. No one can be compared to him. He has no equal. The Lord alone is the Holy One. He alone created all of what we see out there in the night sky. Listen to this 26th verse once again from the message. It says, look at the night skies. Who do you think made all of this? Who marches this army of stars out each night? Counts them off, calls them each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. No one else is great enough, nor has the power to create a vast universe like we have. Note that the Lord himself is speaking. He challenges the reader, go ahead, take a look for yourself. Who created all of this? Certainly not some little God made out of a piece of wood or some metal by the imagination of of a corrupt human being. No, it was the Holy One, the Lord Himself. In fact, He is so great that as we just read here, He not only created the stars, but He also named them and then calls them all by their names. Stop and think about that for a moment, would you? Think about how you can be forgetful, how I can be forgetful. <laughs> um, you know, I know their name. <laughs> it's, I know I know it, but it's just not coming, right? Can you imagine the, the gazillion stars that are out there. Not only did he name every one of them, but he calls them all by name. And never do we find God going, um, uh, no, he knows them. It comes to mind immediately. Now, at this point, however, I think some could be thinking. Some possibly might be thinking, well, you know, that's great that God knows all the stars by name. It's great that he spans the universe in the hand and sits on the circle of the earth. Verse 22 tells us that. 
that he makes leaders and judges as nothing. Verse 23 tells us that. But could a God who is that big and that powerful be interested in me? It's a good question, isn't it? Does he really care that I'm having a hard time paying the bills? Does he really care that I'm struggling with some health issues? Does he really hear my cry of desperation? You see, that was the attitude of God's people during the day of Isaiah. This is what they were thinking. This is why it says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. They didn't so much dispute the greatness of God. I want you to see this. As they did dispute the fact that, and question, did he really care about them? That was their problem. This is their issue. And so today, you and I have no reason whatsoever to dispute either one of those. You want to know why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ answers that question, both questions, forever. Yeah. Amen. And not only does the resurrection answer the questions, so do the rest of these verses that we find at the end of this 40th chapter. Look at verse 28 with me. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. It says that he is the everlasting God. I love that name of God. How about you? As you know, as most of you know, the Bible is filled with all kinds of wonderful names of our God, right? And I think this might be one of my favorites. <laughs> The everlasting God. You see, the name identifies him as the covenant keeper, as the God who stands by his word, as the God who can be trusted, as the God who was so fully and completely committed to you and to me. The everlasting God. We tend to think of God in such a way that because he controls the universe and because he's so busy, maybe even so tired that he doesn't have time for you or me. But here the everlasting God reaches out in his loving kindness and we find him saying, I don't only have limitations, I have no limitations in time, I have no limitations in strength or energy, and I have no limitations in terms of understanding. Not one bit. I love that. And then he follows that up with some amazing assurances for all who would dare to believe them. Verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. We're finding the difference here between just natural, physical strength compared to supernatural strength that God provides. Verse 31, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. It says the Lord will renew. 
the strength of all who hope. That's in the NIV. The New Living Translation says wait. The New King James Version says trust. All three words are great descriptors of the original Hebrew. And so no matters one's chronological age. I expected all the 60 and above to say amen on that one. (laughs) No matter one's chronological age, the Lord will strengthen those who hope, trust, and wait on Him. And so when revival does come, I think we're given a picture here of what it will look like for every saint of God soaring on the wings of eagles, running and not walk, you know, not growing weary. And, and, and wow. The Lord will build up the believer, empower their spirit to soar above the trials and temptations that trouble them, to soar just like an eagle above the earth. A believer who truly hopes in the Lord will be strengthened so that they can run through the problems and through the hardships and through the trials and through the temptations that life throws at us. And they will not grow weary and they will walk victoriously, triumphantly, and not faint. This is what God makes possible for every single one of us. The strength we need to be able to rise up and fly high above our storms on wings like eagles, on wings of His grace. This is what Jesus does for His disciples on that resurrection morning, right? And following. It's what He continues to do for us even now. When Jesus died on the cross, as this video displayed for us, the disciples were divided. They're discouraged. They're defeated. They were ready to quit, probably entertaining thoughts like, man, we believed it and put all of our efforts into serving God. And we were so sure that he was the Messiah and that he was going to set us free. And we had put all of our hopes in him, believing he was truly the Messiah. But now he lays in a tomb. They're wondering, has their faith and their hope been misplaced? There is no more obvious example of this than what we find in a couple of guys (laughs) traveling, we assume, back home on the very same day of resurrection morning. I find this so interesting. Experiencing all of the emotions that we've just mentioned. So let's fast forward from Isaiah over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, where we find two hopeless travelers. Verse 13 and 14 is where we're going to be start off here and as we look at this. It says, now that same day, two of them meaning two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. 
Can we face it? Can we be honest with each other? Life typically isn't always fantastic. Have you found that out to be true? Yeah. Usually life is ordinary and sometimes painful. But that is when, as we have been talking about her over the months, over the years, that is when we do our most learning and our best growing spiritually. That is when we have the greatest opportunity, folks, to encounter the risen Jesus. <laughs> if we would but have eyes to see him, hearts to believe. So prior to his arrest, as you know, Jesus traveled up and down that strip of land we call Israel. Once ruled by David and Solomon. And what's he doing? He's inviting people to become a part of his kingdom. Promising abundant life, eternal life. His followers were full of hope that he would become their king. That he would set them free, as, that he would put Israel back on the map, if you would. He would again, that they would cause them to become prosperous and free. And they were hoping that he was their promised Messiah, as I've said. But then, as you know, on one very fateful Friday afternoon, as the sun went down on Jerusalem, the Son of God, who had been lifted up on a Roman cross, hung cold and lifeless just outside the city walls. Paul tells us some years later from this point in time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ is indeed been raised from the dead. But on that very first resurrection morning, that living hope was far from being established in the experience of Jesus' followers. And in particular, these two guys leaving Jerusalem headed for Emmaus. They had left the discouraged and confused band of disciples with the events of Good Friday fresh on their memories. Their master, whom they revered, loved, followed, had been horribly put to death. A cruel death of the most degrading kind. Death by crucifixion was the most shameful of deaths at this point in time. The reason was because it was made the victim was made a spectacle publicly. Very shameful. Call, recall with me only a week earlier on what we call Palm Sunday. The disciples' hopes had to have risen to, risen to fever pitch. Can you imagine? Oh boy, we're there now. This is, this is happening. It's going down. The disciples' hopes had risen to, to that kind of level as when the excited crowds had held their master, remember what they called out? Hosanna to the king of kings, right? Hosanna. But now he lays dead in a sealed tomb. Their hopes, try to put yourself there, their hopes are dashed. The dream is over. The reports that Christ's tomb was actually empty 
They were told, we are told in verse 10, they had already been told that, seemed to have nothing to do with their disposition. It has no effect on them. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, right. They don't believe the women who had come back and told them. It did nothing to alter their thinking, did nothing to change their doubt, their defeat, their despair or disillusionment. Their entire world has come apart. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these sayings with each other, don't you love this? Jesus <laughs> came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Luke tells, does something here that's very interesting. See, he writes this in such a way that he is aware that the person who is going to be reading what he has written is fully aware of the facts that are hidden at this point from the characters in the story. So in other words, we read it this morning. We know who it is that's just joined them, right? But it says it was kept from them knowing. And I just want to insert here, I think... I have over the years when reading verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. I just always kind of interpret that as God is the one who kept them from figuring out who it was. And I, I, I've come to believe something different. I'm thinking it is their own selves because of their disposition, because of their doubt, because of their dis, um, disillusionment. Because of where they are, down and down and down, they are not able to get themselves out of the way to recognize who it is that has just joined them in their journey. How often have you and I, who have been desperately needing a move of God, a touch of God, had Him standing right in front of us, but because we couldn't get ourselves out of the way, missed Him? And I think that is what's going on here. They are not getting, not recognizing. It's the Son of God. It's the risen Savior who is right here with them. Let's continue on. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you talking about? What are you discussing together as you walk along? <laughs> they stood still. Their, their lives downcast. Their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? It's kind of like their way of saying, what planet have you been on? <laughs> Verse 19, Jesus speaking here, what things? <laughs> he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. The response of this one who we're reading here reveals the condition of both men's hearts. The two Emmaus-bound disciples tell the stranger that this Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But I want you to notice, did you notice those first words on the beginning of that? But he was. These words strongly imply that he was no longer relevant to the present of their lives. Or otherwise, they wouldn't have been in their present downcast state of mind. 
as we all know, life dishes out to us all kinds of distractions and stuff, right? Hard work, tired bodies, health issues, which can get us so down that we find ourselves going on our journey just kind of like pinned to the ground with our viewpoint, our eyes not being lifted from the grind of the road we travel. We become unaware of the glory and strength of His presence, which is with us as born-again believers. Life loses its meaning and leaves us down and out, but this story brings hope to our lives. You see, here's the truth. The amazing, magnificent truth, Jesus is still here. He's the unseen one walking with us, listening to us. And if we are willing to hear his voice, he will reveal himself to us. These two guys summed up the situation very simply by saying, but we had hoped. This is verse 21. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. That he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see what they've done? They have built up a wall of hopelessness. They are trapped within that very wall that they themselves have put themselves in. What they're saying is, we don't hope for it now. We don't expect it now like we once did. So what does Jesus do to help these two guys break out of their self-made prison of hopelessness? He points them to himself as seen in Scripture. Look at verse 25 with me now. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Imagine with me what a Bible study that must have been. (laughs) When it says beginning with Moses, we take that to understand that he's, he dates all the way back to the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, books Moses gives us. And so because of that, surely he took them to Genesis 3.15 to begin things, right? Where it tells us that one would come and stomp and crush the head of the serpent. Amen. And certainly he would have reminded them and taken them to Abraham and told them and reminded them how he was willing to sacrifice his very own son Isaac, but a substitute was provided. He would have taken them to Joseph and, and who you know, became a source of, of life and provision for his brothers who had tried to destroy him. I imagine that he would have taken them to the Exodus, amen, and reminded them about that and how the Israelites were saved from the death angel through the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. Jesus would have undoubtedly 
taken them through the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53. And I can just hear him with deep passion and emphasis. Maybe even, you know, a little extra when he gets to verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. But as we see here, even after all of this, best, greatest Bible study ever given. <laughs> Their hearts are burning, we're told later. They still don't get it. <laughs> they still don't recognize. They still don't realize who it is that's just given them this Bible study. <laughs> and it's not until they have a meal together that their eyes are opened. Verse 30 says, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Just like all of yours are right now, right? <laughs> and they recognized him. And then, and then look at this. And he disappeared from their sight. As Jesus took the bread, as he gives thanks... As he breaks it and begins to serve it, suddenly they see him. Suddenly they know him. And then just as suddenly, he's gone. <laughs> Once their eyes were opened to the true reality and implications of the resurrection, Jesus became visible to their physical eyes. When Jesus took his last breath on the cross... Obviously, his eyes were closed. But church, I want you to see that those eyes closed as he breathed his last so that our eyes could be opened to see him. The grave was emptied so that our hearts could be filled with him. So that we might see him and behold him in his glory, in his power, and in his majesty. To see him and recognize him and proclaim him through our lives and our actions, behaviors, and our words that he truly is our incomparable, everlasting God. Yeah. Once their eyes were opened to the true reality implications of that resurrection, oh, it's when death was arrested <laughs> and life began. Amen. The Greek phrase translated, eyes were opened and they recognized him, literally means their eyes were completely opened and they came to fully comprehend him. This action was more than a mere recognition of his features. They came to recognize Jesus and all of his significance as the Messiah, the Son of God, and their risen Lord. 
And I think if you've ever asked yourself the question, what was it about the breaking of bread and them sharing that meal together that all of a sudden it was then that they recognized who Jesus is? I, I, my opinion is because Isaiah 55, 11 promises us, I promise from God, my word will never ever return or come back empty. It will do and serve its purpose. I think that these travelers who have been given the world's greatest Bible study were slow learners. <laughs> kind of like us, right? It took a little while. But once they're in that moment, God's promises kicks in. His word will not return void. It will not come back empty. And boom, their eyes are open. <laughs> and they recognize him. They recognize him. Wow. And then just as suddenly, he's gone. <laughs> but you know what? This is awesome. Because there is a great reason for this. Because only now can these two understand and fully realize a great paradox. So that you and I can understand a great paradox. Jesus had vanished from their presence. But yet he was still in their midst. And notice not only had Jesus vanished. I want you to see this. So has their hopelessness. You see what happens when we see Jesus? When we fully comprehend who he is to be in our lives? What hopelessness, what trial, what hardship, what difficulty compare to the everlasting God? Their hopelessness is gone. And all of a sudden they find themselves with a renewed hope. Soaring on wings like eagles, running and not growing weary, walking and not fainting. All the way back to Jerusalem, <laughs> as verse 33 tells us. Woo! Gotta tell somebody. We gotta get back there to Jerusalem and let the disciples in on what has just happened. And that's exactly what they do. While that is going on, they get back to Jerusalem, they find them. Locked behind closed doors, right? Hiding out for fear that they might be next. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this. Check this out. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Well, why does he tell them this? Verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they've just seen a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts rise in your minds? And then he shows them his hands, his side. And then he asked a question. Does a ghost have flesh and bones as you see now? And this is the powerful truth for us today, church, on the evening of that first resurrection Sunday, the Jesus whom they were convinced they would never, ever see again on this earth was actually standing right there in their presence, in their midst.
the door is locked. Somehow he gets in. <laughs> He's standing right there with those disciples of his. And he's still standing, church. Amen. And he's still standing in the midst of his church. He's still standing as the resurrected king of kings of kings. For all those who would see him, put their trust in him and believe in him, who take up their crosses daily and follow him. Now, after the resurrection, after they see the risen Lord, this fearful bunch who were huddled together behind locked doors became a fearless bunch <laughs> in their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As most of you are aware, on Pentecost Sunday, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Shortly thereafter, another 5,000 are added. By the end of that first century, a million have come to give their lives to Jesus Christ. Why? It all happened because God gave grace to his people so that they would may be able to soar by his resurrection power. It is their resurrection that proves that Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible, right? It is the resurrection that seals our salvation, transforms our lives. You can go and visit the burial sites of Buddha's ashes, Mohammed's body, Gandhi's urn. But the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth is empty. All our hope hangs on this fact. Jesus is alive. We can, we can join with Job when he says, for I know my Redeemer lives. And I'm going to date myself right now. We can join in with the song that Gloria Gaither wrote. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Referring back to Isaiah 40, 31, the word renew carries the idea of exchange. When we trust in him, we exchange our weakness for his strength. We exchange our inability for his ability. We exchange our shortcomings for his completeness. Someone has said the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And so as we wait on the Lord, he enables us to not only fly higher, to run faster, but also to walk longer in faith in Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 lets us know that because Jesus became sin, taking on the full force of God's wrath, that which we deserved, right? We can be transferred into God's kingdom. In 1 Peter 2.9, it refers to that as his marvelous light. There is nothing else in all the world that demonstrates how real God's love is for us sinners and how real our sin is to our God. You see, a renewed culture 
can happen, not because we transform institutions or policies. Never in history has a revival been sparked by political activity. It is because of a cross-centered kingdom that transforms human hearts. It is because of true believers praying and displaying and living as Christ calls us to live. The world will only be changed, church, if we ourselves will be changed. Has the greatest event that this world has ever seen changed you? Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up my heart.